I am Andrea Butcher, and this is Being at Work. Being a leader is hard. So on this show, I set out to talk with experienced leaders to learn from their pivotal moments, how they led through the challenges we can all relate to but are often unheard. Today's guest believes that every student should have access to hands-on learning through STEM education. Once a robotic student himself, George Giltner was inspired to become a team mentor and later a robotics coach. After 10 years of teaching technology education, he was asked to lead the state robotics initiative for TechPoint Foundation for Youth. After five years of growing the program statewide and helping to start more elementary and middle school robotics teams in the country, George has just been recently promoted to president and CEO for TechPoint Foundation for Youth. Through his experience, George has seen the endless positive effects robotics and STEM can have on students, teachers, schools, and communities. Now leading TechPoint Foundation for Youth into its next era, George's goals include ensuring all schools in Indiana have a robotics team and all students have equal access to STEM education. During our conversation today, he'll talk about the pivot from teaching students to leading adults, and you'll notice a theme across all of his experiences the value of learning from failure. Check it out. I now, with my strong, mighty team at TechLine Foundation for Youth, is, you know, we are entering our next era of the foundation. And I am just giddy again, using that word. We're, we're just all very excited to see, like, what is next for the foundation? What is next for us impacting students? Well, because you're leading an organization that, that comes from something you are so passionate about. So I'm not surprised to hear you describe yourself as feeling a bit giddy. Yeah, I've been described as passionate on numerous occasions. And I think that is something that definitely helps fuel my work every day. Um, I think everyone should be passionate about what they do. It makes the job not feel like a job, right? Do more of what you love. That's what I'm always telling my kids and emerging leaders. Like, Pay attention to those things that jazz you up and really fuel you. My father used to say, uh, find something you love doing and then find someone to pay you to do it. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. But isn't that so true? That's what it's all about. Yeah. And that's what makes this job fun. and, And it doesn't even feel like a job. I mean, I just love every day of it. I love what we do. We have a powerful message that means a lot to students and teachers and schools and communities and Everyone at TechPoint Foundation for Youth, our entire team, really believes in what we do. And so that makes the work meaningful. And I think that's important. But that passion comes pretty easy when you get to see the kind of the efforts of what we do and what it does for changing the lives of so many students. Yeah, a lot of stakeholders that you're leading, but all rallied around a common mission, which makes it fun. So let's go back. Because I know, you know, this on this show, we highlight CEOs and executives leading through a pivotal moment, a time in their career when they learned a lot about themselves and their leadership. And for you, I know it was this pivot from teaching to nonprofit, different type of leadership, students to adults. So I can't wait to hear all the insights that you're going to share around that. So I'll let you start wherever you feel best called to start. That is my pivotal leadership transition. You're absolutely right. Because um, I do want to kind of back up and start like, where did my passion for STEM education even start? Or where did it begin? I think it's something when we first spoke, I think one of the first things that I said to you that 
I don't know if it wowed you or it kind of took you back when I said I am passionate about uh, education and teaching. And as a student, I hated school. <laughs> so um, that's a weird thing to say as a, as a teacher. I still feel like I'm an educator, even though I'm not a, a teacher. But yeah, as a, as a student sitting in the classroom, I just remember continually looking at the clock of saying, when am I out of this class? When is this over? And I was doing everything but necessarily sitting there and paying attention to what the teacher was saying, because at the time, it didn't mean much to me. We had to know the things we needed to know for the test or an upcoming homework assignment. And I was always asking that question of why do we need to know this? I, I enjoyed, I guess, daydreaming in those classes more than I did taking notes on what I was supposed to, <laughs> supposed to do, right? And I'm sure there's a lot of students that relate to that. And it wasn't until I had my aha moment of taking my first technology education course in high school where it was very open-ended. We got to create and, and, and learn how to fail, which is such a, I mean, that concept of learning how to fail uh, as a student is such a magical moment of that freedom that just because I fail doesn't mean I get an F or I get a poor grade on an assignment. I, I fail, but I get to overcome. And in engineering, that happens a lot, right? You never get it right the first time and you learn from your mistake of why it didn't work and you get to modify and redesign it. And my first kind of engineering class or technology education class, I got to learn to do that. And I like to think that I joined the robotics team because I had a passion for engineering, but believe it or not, my mom made me join the robotics team in high school. She knew that I liked working with my hands and I enjoyed that class more than any other class. And so she forced me to join the robotics team. And that's kind of where everything clicked for me. I can't believe there's an extracurricular activity where you get to learn to design and build something from scratch using your own creativity. And you are your own leader on this team. You are responsible for, and I was in charge of electronics in my high school team. So I was responsible for the wiring and putting the sensors on a robot that caused it to perform. And if I didn't wire something correctly, it wouldn't move. And uh, so that put a lot of ownership on me. And I felt like I had a responsibility to my team members, just like you would in sports, right? Like if you're a football player and you're an offensive lineman, for example, you might not seem like your role is the quarterback or the running back or the one that gets the touchdowns, but that's a pivotal position. If you don't do your job, the quarterback might get sacked, for example. So I learned through that experience and it inspired me to go into electrical engineering. I went to Purdue to study electrical engineering. And then at my time there, I had another I guess we're talking about a bunch of pivotal moments. I learned that I liked working with kids and realized that I was on a mentorship program called College Mentor for Kids. It's like big bro, big sis, but you meet with your little, your littles, they're called, your little buddies each week. And I had to, the organization, you had to create your own activities each week on campus. So on Purdue, we would go in the, the chemistry building and build slime, or you go in the ME building and build a bridge and each week was a different lesson. I was like, I actually like working with kids and showing them engineering and how to build and work with their hands and how when they make a mistake, it's okay and you can overcome that failure. And so it was kind of this like, oh my gosh, I think I like teaching. Even though I was a student that hated being in the classroom, I kind of had this mission or myself to say, what if I made teaching different? What if I made learning different? What if I 
became a teacher where students in my class would say, I like being here and I want to learn more. And I transitioned into teaching and became a robotics coach. And I know you asked me, where's that pivotal moment? I had this long drawn out, here's the history of me. But I felt like that's always important to know, like where I come from and where I get this passion, because I had the pleasure or I guess the privilege of to both be a student of a robotics program to see what that could do to transition to be a coach of a robotics team and to see what it can do to these students that are academically challenged, that don't excel in your everyday academic classes or core classes, but they thrive in robotics. Or you can take these students in robotics that are, you know, high achieving, uh, applying to colleges as juniors, and they excel really well. I got to, I got to see what that is. I got to, to be a part of that culture. And I, and that's what led me to nonprofit work was, wow, I can actually do, I could do this as a career. I can not just teach kids in the classroom, but I can actually lead a nonprofit or at the time it's called a state robotics initiative to help start robotics teams. Well, and it, it, it does make me think of all these athletes that become coaches in their career at some point because they're so passionate about the sport. It's the same thing for you. You know, you have this incredible experience. I mean, it really turned, sounds like it turned your high school experience around in a lot of ways. You came to life, not really enjoying the classroom. Here was a, here was a class that was hands-on where you had a, a clear leadership role that drove ownership and engagement. And so no doubt that was transformative for you. Yeah. And I know when you asked kind of like, where did your leadership pivot? And, you know, that transition going from teaching to help leading a, a nonprofit um, and working with students to now adults. I mean, you can't do the same. You, you can't be a leader of students and adults the same way, but they, you know, they all want to do good. I mean, I feel like that's what I have found is that students want to do good they want to do good by the robotics team and working a nonprofit. All my team members, they want to do good. They want to do what's right. And so they all have that same shared kind of commonality. But yeah, I had to learn what that difference was. And then I, I think another thing that was kind of unique and different was that picking and choosing, kind of going back to how students or athletes turn into leaders or coaches is I learned along the way of what did I not like in the classroom and how can I change that when I'm a leader? And what did I like as a athlete, as my coaches, and what can I change with I'm a coach? Or what did I like about my first boss and what can I do to make sure that I provide that to my team? And so I think you asked me, like, what was your pivotal moment of becoming a leader? And I think I shared with you is that I feel like I'm a leader that picks and chooses the, the pros and cons of every person in my life. And I kind of learned from that. And I think that's what a lot of people kind of do is they, they evolve as you get older. You evolve as a leader, right? And I feel like each experience in my life has shaped you know, who I am and what my leadership qualities are. Dating back to all the way from my grandmother teaching me, or my busha, my Polish grandmother, teaching me that you have to be, if you're not early, you're late. You know, that carries on till today. I mean, I have to be early to all meetings. I think my dad taught me to work hard, play hard. He worked very hard, but yet he, when he was with family, knew fun with me and my family. And my mother taught me to be, you know, to care about other people, no matter if they're good or bad to you. And that carries on to the work I do still today. And then I guess the last point is, I know my very first boss, and he knew construction inside out. He knew every day what he was going to say, what he was going to do, because he did that for 30 years. 
but he was the kind of leader that was the first one in the office every day, and he was the last one to leave because he was constantly looking at ways to improve his class. Even though he had been doing this for 30 years, even though he knew exactly what to do, he was never satisfied with you know, what he did yesterday. Uh, he need, tomorrow needs to be better. And so each of those little like small antidotes of testimonies of, and experiences I've kind of carried on as a leader uh, to my own team. And I think that's important for me. What a great reminder to take bits and pieces from everyone who influences you. Well, and, and you've talked about how everyone has strengths and everyone has opportunities. So you're, you're learning in different ways, aren't you, as you're paying attention to what other, what other leaders are sharing? Yeah. So I was the, at TechMind Foundation for Youth, I was just the director of programs prior to this. So it was a pretty smooth transition to go from teaching to now you're overseeing like the state robotics initiative and helping start robotics teams. Well, I knew robotics inside and out. I knew what teachers needed to know to start a robotics team because I was a coach and I helped start robotics teams when I was a coach. So that was pretty simple. That was pretty easy. I had a, I had to hire a support staff to help me with that. And that was actually an interesting story. One of my very first times of hiring someone to help support my team because what was, what I think was interesting or something that I learned from the hiring side is I knew that I knew robotics inside and out. And I knew that I was passionate about robotics, but when I needed to hire someone to support me, I remember I was doing a lot of soul searching because I was kind of between two candidates, one that knew robotics really well and was kind of a clone of myself in a way. And then another person who was very operation oriented, behind the scenes, organized, but did not know anything about robotics. And... I end up choosing and going with, and thankfully I did, the compliment to me, not the clone of me. And I learned like that's such a, an important asset to a team to compliment your weaknesses sometimes. And uh, because they should be supporting you. And we all, you know, if, if you just had four clones of yourself, you're not going to make a lot of progress that way. And so, yeah, I, my, our, we were fairly successful in our state robotics initiative in the early years because I found someone that could, could complement all of my weaknesses and I complemented her weaknesses and we were a pretty dynamic duo, just two people helping start more robotics teams than the other state in the entire country. That worked really well. And her and I are now had recent promotions to oversee the foundation and I couldn't ask for another, a better team member. And uh, just because she she is very, very good at managing the day-to-day operations and I'm more the high-level thinker and, and that's worked really well. Yeah, that's so good. Well, and it takes such great awareness on your part too of what you are good at and not as good at so that you can hire for those complementary strengths. Is there any connection there with the the comment you made earlier around learning how to fail that you jumped over that pretty quickly, but... Because there's got to be an openness to experimenting and different and risk and trying things, which is similar to what I'm hearing in this example is that this was different. This wasn't the comfortable path because it's a different path. It's someone with different strengths and different perspectives. And I didn't intentionally mean to go over that. Um, I guess I'm just so excited to share about the wonderful world of robotics. But um, yes, I think failure is such an important tool. It's something we emphasize in STEM education and technology education. You just hear so much about 
teaching to the test and ISTEP and SAT scores and, you know, to get into college that we are all assessing by our grades, our GPA. What was your SAT score? But in technology education, it teaches you, and it's hard to assess, is how do you overcome failure? And I feel like when you create a culture, and I try to do this in our work, is if you try to create a culture that it is okay to fail, but you can't just stop there. Like you can't just say it's okay to fail. It is, but learning from that mistake and making sure that you don't do that again and make sure that you don't have a habit of, of, of doing that. Obviously, can't just accept it's okay to fail. You can't just fail at everything you do. Eventually, you have to learn from those mistakes, <laughs> right? We, can, we can't just say... That's, that's a whole other challenge, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. And I would say that's something that I, I, I hope my, my team would say that I support or embrace is saying, it's okay to fail, let's, let, but let's learn from that. And, I, and going back to the difficulties of becoming a teacher or being a teacher and then a leader is I always have to make sure that I check myself mentally and saying, Am I talking to my team members as if they're students or as if they're adults that are in the professional world? Because I think there's constantly there's times of like, all right, I want to work with this person that maybe made a mistake. And I want to talk to them about why did you make that mistake and how can we set up systems so that doesn't happen again? And because I would tell you that something that I've learned, and I don't know exactly if this was something I picked up from my father or but owning, if you're the leader of a team, owning all failure of your team. So if a, if a team member makes a mistake, I constantly ask myself, what did I as a leader, what can I do better to make sure that they don't make that mistake again? What system can we put in place so they don't make that mistake again? Versus pointing the fingers, blaming at them, saying, hey, you, you screwed up here. And that doesn't really help to just always point and be negative. So... I, I feel like that's one thing that I always make sure that my staff knows is that if you make a mistake, I'm not going to throw you under the bus and point that out and ridicule you. We're going to learn together of like, how can we make sure that that doesn't happen again? Yeah, that's, that is incredible. And that's ownership, isn't it? It's ownership. It's also that we are all in this as a team. So we succeed together, we fail together. And just think about the, gosh, the pressure then that's off. It's much easier to share failure than it is for that that to rest solely on you. Yeah. And, but it also takes a big responsibility in the workers. We talk about how important it is for everyone to play their role. Uh, well, maybe I'm bragging. I'm going to bring a bragging moment of going back to, <laughs> I mean, we, when I was saying, because I'm proud of this, is that our foundation helped start more robotic scenes than, other state, in, than any other state in the entire country. I mean, we have about, we have over 25,000 students involved in robotics, over 51% of those uh, schools in Indiana have a robotics team. Like that's huge. And that wouldn't have been achieved if every, every team member on in our foundation didn't play their role. And I mean, it's absolutely essential, essential that each of them, that they take ownership and almost leadership of themselves. You know, only a, a small team of, there's five of us. If one person continues to make the same mistake, that, that is, that shows very, it's like the weakest link, right? Like you, you have to bring up and pull up your weakest link because that impacts everyone else. And so we, I really talk about everyone having ownership of the work they do, caring about the work they do, making sure that, you know, I, I have a high expectation for myself, but my team members of, you know, making sure everything they, they do is, is good. It's good work. You have to be proud of it because it represents all of us as team members. 
Yeah, I love that. I love the play your role. That's so practical. And then before that, you were talking about debriefing failures, because that's also got to normalize them. And, you know, I think it's, um, you're only as sick as your secrets. (laughs) And sometimes when we try to cover up failures or mistakes, you know, they can really eat away with it. Yeah, no, let's get it out in the open so we can learn from it and grow from it. I think that's pretty hard. I hate to be wrong. I really do. I hate to make mistakes. Like I take it very personal whenever I make mistakes. But one thing that I kind of going back to lead by example is if I make a mistake, I try to be the first one to say, Hey, I, I clearly made, I messed up. I goofed up. You know, I try to air it out and let everyone see what I did. And then I, I then quickly say, here's what I'm going to do to make sure that doesn't happen again. Because no one will ever fault you for that. I mean, have you ever been faulted for raising your hand and saying, hey, I messed that up? Because who can't relate to that? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And <laughs> I was trying to think of a corny example of like, I'm sure that has backfired before. <laughs> Somewhere in history, I'm sure that's backfired when you raise your hand <laughs> and say, yep, I screwed up. But you're right. I think everyone overall in the long run, it, it pays to, to just be honest and upfront and move forward with it. Well, so maybe I, sh- maybe I should personalize it. In my experience, whenever I raise my hand and say, oh, I messed that up and even make light about it. Like, oh yeah, you're, I was facilitating for a huge audience, global audience of about 300 leaders of the day on this. On, I noticed on a slide, I had a major typo that I hadn't caught. And so I just acknowledged it and laughed about it. And I know there was never a comment made about it. We went on. You know, I, yeah, I've just, I've, I've never had that backfire like that. I agree. Yeah. Not that I wanted to bring up Eminem during this interview or eight mile, but I, I do remember in my young years of watching eight mile at the very, <laughs> I can't believe I even bring this up. He's in the rap battle at the end. Have you seen the movie? No, but I keep going. I love Eminem. I've not seen the movie. Well, he goes into this rap where he basically insults himself during the rap and points out, you can't put me down or hurt me because I know where my weakness and all my flaws are. They're here. He airs out his laundry in front of his opponent. And now he's like, you can't make fun of me because I just told you everything that's bad about me. And so I don't know if that aligns or relates, but it just, it it came up in my mind when you said that. And I, (laughs) I don't know what that's worth. There's a humility in that. I mean, because it's interesting. I was getting ready to ask you, learning how to fail. I was going to ask you, what are the leadership characteristics that, or what are the leadership muscles I can build to learn how to fail? And is it humility one of them? I mean, that's what I hear in that M&M story. Uh, well, in something I teach, I teach young teachers who are ready to become robotics coaches. So putting things in perspective, some of these robotics coaches or these teachers that become robotics coaches, they're first grade teachers that maybe are not tech savvy. And so when you go to them to say, you're going to become a robotics coach and coach young students, they, I mean, they just, you got to be kidding me. What? Like, I don't know anything about robotics. I don't know anything about coding. I don't know anything about electronics or building a robot. And the first thing I tell them is you don't need to know or have all the answers when you coach a robotics team. You need to be able to provide the resources and the tools for the students to succeed. You need to set them up for success. And when they don't know, or when you don't know an answer, you need to show them, hey, let's figure this out together. Or here's some resources for you to look into to figure that out. And I learned that, I learned that my very first year as a teacher, 
my when I was hiring, I was hiring to teach electronics, but at the time I needed to teach six classes and they only had enough students for one digital one electronics course. So my uh, they asked if I would teach an automotive class and I knew nothing about automotive at the time. I mean, I probably could change the tire and maybe change the oil and that's about the limits there. But it was a very humbling experience. And what I learned from that is it's okay to not always know the answer. And teachers, they feel like they need to be the, the knowledge authority in that room. And when I, I tell the teachers, when you learn to be able to sit in front of a group of 30 kids and tell them, you know what, I don't know the answer, but we're going to figure this out. That's right there, that overcoming, overcoming a failure. I mean, it's not that you failed that you didn't know. It's Hey, I, I might not know the answer, but I know where we can look. I know we can work together to figure this out. And that's a, it's a huge pivotal moment, I think, for teachers when they can accept that they don't need to know all the answers to provide these resources for the students. Well, and aren't those life skills? I mean, because I, I think about the, the SAT, ACT, the grade-based perfection focus. I have a freshman at IU, and she's always been a really good student, you know, was determined to be an honor student early on. But a lot of her performance has been just based on those scores, those grades, you know, and it's like, what's, what's the actual learning process look like? And because, honey, when you get out into the world, <laughs> it's not so simple. <laughs> well, yes, yes. I mean, I say over and over again that robotics does not teach kids how to build a robot and score points at a competition. And that's not what's most important. Number one, most important, I know I mentioned and emphasize a lot about the failure and overcoming failure, but what I say is probably one of the biggest takeaways is problem solving. And I just feel like that's such a skill that can be applied to any job in any career, no matter where you are. I mean, problem solving, obviously, I say, what do engineers do? They solve problems. But if you're a nurse or a doctor, I would hope they would be solving problems every day. You know, if you're an accountant, you're solving problems. If you're an architect or in construction or automotive, if you're a podcaster, you're solving problems every single day. And so, you know, robotics is just a fun way to celebrate and put kids together to learn how to problem solve. And that's a skill that can be applied to anything they do in any career. Yeah, you know, it's interesting just how we had not anticipated this really being like a focus around owning and overcoming failure. But that for me, George, that's the theme that's emerging, that learning and the growth that comes from that. My key takeaways are then with your team. So you you are modeling that. And it all starts with, it's interesting how I can see how the dots have so connected throughout your career, because I loved how you started with the the high on the high school team, how you were responsible for wiring and that a lot of the ownership was on you. So how you've really you've taken that has become a big part of your leadership philosophy because now you're owning all of the failure with your team, all the successes with your team. So that ownership is a theme. But then I also hear like learning how to fail is also about ensuring that everyone's really clear on, hey, like play your role. So you're setting people up for success in clarifying who's doing what. And then I also, but, and then when somebody does make a mistake or there's some sort of failure, like talking about that, debriefing it, bringing it out into the open so that there's an opportunity to learn and grow through it. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in the classroom, that typically happens by taking the kid out in the hall and talking with them about like, hey, you made this mistake. Here's how we can overcome this. You, you typically might not do that in front of the entire class. 
And I think that's something that we do a lot now, especially in COVID is I'll, I'll, you know, after a mis- if we identify something, maybe at all staff meeting, I might afterwards just say, Hey, would you mind jumping on a, a chat really quick? And then just talking with that individual or during our one-on-one with them, just saying, Hey, I know you made a mistake or, you know, you, you're feeling kind of down about some mistakes you made. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about ways we can improve it or how can I help you succeed to make sure that doesn't happen again. Well, and then think about what that does for that individual too. I mean, I just recently had a conversation with a team member in that regard. And he said to me afterwards, like, I have been stewing on this. Thank you so much for talking through it. It's like, it's like, it's lifted now. Yeah. Well, kind of going back to like a performance reviews um, with staff, I usually tell them we'll have, we're going to have scheduled quarterly performance reviews, but you should not, it will not take me three or six months to tell you if there's an issue or a problem, you'll know right away. Like if I have any issues, I won't stew over problems or concerns because completely honest, I don't, I don't know if I have time to wait that long to tell some staff members they need to make an adjustment. Like I need that adjusted now so that we can move forward and not wait for six months for them to figure it out on their own. Sometimes, you know, you've got to make sure. So that just, you're right. And then one another important leadership lesson, like just in time feedback so that you can work through it because there's energy there then, then that can be productively applied. Like going back to the situation with, with my team member, he said like, thank you so much. He was like, I have been stewing on this and now it's lifted. So that was blocking his performance in some ways. That's a good point. And, and, I think that's one nice thing about the work that we do at the foundation that goes back to the passion is, you know, we have a mission to help provide STEM education uh, access to all students. It's a fun environment. I mean, the work we do is rewarding, but it's it's fun. And I try to remind my staff members that all the time of like, what we do is is fun. We're not, I don't know, I, I can't give an example because I don't want to put any other, you know, any other jobs down, but like, we have fun, rewarding work. And so that should, you know, that should be, we should be reminded of that a lot. And, and that, that is a, a challenge during COVID right now, because we don't always get to see kind of the fruits of our labor firsthand. You know, we don't get to go into the schools and see it because we can't go into the schools right now, or we can't have the events, which is unfortunate, but we're trying to, to do our best to connect to classrooms and see what we're doing. Well, I love the work you're doing and it does sound like a lot of fun and keep doing it. I mean, that's so energizing and the impact that you're having is incredible. So thank you so much, George, for sharing these great insights with us today, these great leadership lessons. If our listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Probably my LinkedIn, just George Gilner on on the LinkedIn or our website, techpointyouth.org. You can see the, the work that we do on there. Great. You know, there's there's actually one other thing I wanted to mention before we sign off. I wish you would. So it, it was funny when we first talked, you mentioned the name of your podcast, Being at Work. And I don't know if this is worthy of mentioning. I just thought I'd have to say it. Going back to quotes of my father, my wise father, George Gilner, one of it, I'm a junior. One of the things that he would always say to me is be where you are. I mean, I don't know if you've heard. I'm sure you've heard that, right? Like be where you are. I just know growing up, he would always say, be where you are. And I was an only child, so we go on vacation all the time, right? And he'd be like, be where you are. Basically, he was saying, get off your Game Boy or like, look at the mountains that we're at. And so when it, when you mentioned that being at work, it made me think of be where you are, what my father would say. And then I would like, I looked into your podcast and listened to several episodes. And I'm like, 
oh, okay, like it's a little bit different. But I just, when I first heard it, that's something that I thought of is like being at work could be being where you are and like being relevant and present in the mind and the work you're doing. I don't know. It just stuck with me and meant something. So take that, take that for what you are. Oh, thank you for sharing that. I so appreciate that connection. And I think that <laughs> that sentiment of be where you are is very consistent with the spirit of the show is encouraging leaders to, to be, just be more of who they are in their workplace. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to never miss a being at work story.